you want the money to pay you. And so, you know, I'm a big advocate of, of make the big chunks of cash and then use that cash to buy real estate that pays you every month. Welcome, my friend, to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. And before we get into the show in today's episode, which I know you'll get a lot of value from because we're, we stay out of all the fluffy stuff and we get straight into the good stuff of real estate investing advice, I want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, and that's Patch of Land. Uh, they are making this show possible and they're making tons of flipping projects possible all across the country. If you don't know about Patch of Land, then they are the number one company to go to for uh, projects that you're flipping uh, because they have all the money available right now. Um, once you get approved for your your deal and yourself as a sponsor or a borrower, um, you're going to be funded by them. And then they go raise the money through their crowdfunding platform. So you don't have to worry about all that. They'll take care of the, the money and the funding for you. You just have to worry about making sure your project's, project's a success. Uh, they've got something really cool for you. So um, if you are just learning about crowdfunding, uh, they've come up with a guide. It's called the Top 10 Crowdfunding Questions Guide. And they're all the, the questions that you might be asking yourself. And they're all the answers. They don't leave you hanging. They've got answers too. All the answers to those, those 10 crowdfunding questions. So you can go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Uh, and if you think you know everything about crowdfunding, I'd check this guide out just in case because there are some interesting aspects that you'll learn. So go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless, and this is a show all about getting you your best real estate investing advice ever from our best ever guests. And we talked to Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And today we've got Tucker Marahue from Portland, Oregon. How you doing, Tucker? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, nice to have you, my friend. Tucker is the host of The Real Deals Podcast. I stress the deals part because there's a cool Z at the end. There's not an S, so he's a hip guy. Um, he's the owner of TTM Development Company which is focused on renovating older homes and uh, building new homes throughout Portland, Oregon. He began his career in real estate back in 2002 as a top producing mortgage officer. And now he loves to um, do work on his development company. And then he's also got a couple side things that he was talking about. One is playing basketball and then two is congratulations, and I, I, I was being facetious when I said this is a side thing, congratulations on your newborn daughter. That's pretty cool. Yeah, far from a side thing at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As far as uh, 100% of uh, my time whenever I'm around her. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't have kids, but I used to work at a daycare in college, and then I also babysat whenever I was out of school to make extra money on the side. And I got a taste of what it's like to kind of be responsible for, for children, but nothing close to actually having my own child. And I know from parents, they don't get a whole lot of sleep during those days whenever they're new new parents. And you were saying before that 
it's crazy how much sleep, how little sleep or how you can function so well on little sleep whenever you have to. Yeah. I mean, the first few weeks was, you know, three hours of sleep a night or less. And, uh, you don't know how little sleep you can function on until you have to function on it. So <laughs> I felt like I was at like Navy SEAL camp, you know, or something with uh, no sleep, but I'm like a NASCAR pit now changing diapers. So I'm getting good at it. <laughs> Well, in addition to um, being a proficient diaper changer and then also doing um, your real estate stuff, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into the business and then what you're focused on right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I went to uh, University of Colorado. I grew up in Portland. I went to Colorado to go to college and play lacrosse there. Soon realized that there wasn't big contracts for professional lacrosse like there is in hoops or baseball or football. So I had to figure out something to make money other than uh, sports because we all have a dream or a lot of us of playing professional sports. But So I changed my uh, path to what am I going to do to actually make money when I got to get into the real world. And, um, you know, I ended up back here in Portland, got a job at a really interesting mortgage company. It was the biggest uh, mortgage brokerage in Portland at the time. I actually met my current office manager and listing agent there who now works for me. And uh, so that was the start of kind of a long friendship. But I started there, kind of learned how to sell, learned how to get good on the phone, learn the real estate industry. I mean, when I got into the real estate industry, I literally didn't know a soul. I didn't have any family in it, didn't have any friends in it. I mean, I was 22, 23 years old. So nobody else that I knew was in it or entrenched or could hook me up with anybody. So I literally knew nobody. And so I kind of climbed up the ranks of, of knowing nobody as a loan officer to Eventually leaving there, helping another uh, person from that brokerage start their own company. I ended up being his top producing loan officer. Then I started my own company. And then uh, that then grew into starting my uh, development company. And now we, uh, we build and renovate uh, high-end homes uh, all throughout the Portland metro area. When you started out as the loan officer and then you ventured in, you were top producing loan officer, then you ventured in starting your own company. Why did you start your own company? I mean, money, right? <laughs> we all, uh, you know, or a lot of us kind of aspire to always try and make more money. And so, you know, when you're a loan officer, just like when you're a realtor, if you're working for a company, you get a split, right? The house takes a percentage, you take your chunk and, uh, you know, for not having to worry about all the business administration stuff, a lot of the licensing things, all of the HR stuff, you kind of give up that split. Well, I've always kind of aspired to want to make more and, and just, you know, kind of build my own whatever it is. And so I, I eventually, once I figured that I knew the business well enough to be able to go out on my own, that's when I decided to start my own mortgage company. And, and ultimately, it was, it was very financially rewarding for me. But we did enter into 2008, a couple years after I started that business. And as everybody knows, that was the, you know, the mortgage meltdown or the collapse of the, the real estate industry, at least for a short time. And so at that point, that's when I decided to really kind of take a look around and say, you know what, I need to change the heading of the ship. I decided to actually lay off all my loan officers, laid off my processor, closed the doors, and then just went full bore into the development company. And I'd kind of straddled the fence to that point. I'd done, you know, I'd been buying a house, renovating it, living in it, then selling it, kind of playing the personal residence card, you know, as far as tax-free money. I was flipping about a house at a time on the side, but I wasn't going full time into it because I always had that mortgage money from my mortgage company and my loan origination that was, you know, it was good. So it was hard to just abandon ship. But when the uh, mortgage meltdown happened, it made it real easy for me to change the direction of the ship, head, you know, purely into the direction of uh, redevelopment and house flipping and ultimately building and developing. It just made the decision really easy for me to go that direction. And I'm glad that I did. 
How many people did you have to lay off during that process? Oh, somewhere between eight and 10 people. And, you know, I had grown to know a lot of these people very well. You become friends in a small business. You become friends with people, too. And actually, my processor was my my best friend's girlfriend at the time. And she'd worked for me for a while. So that, you know, that made it rough. It was a it was my first really tough experience as a business owner to have to lay people off. And I was still pretty young at the time. So I had a lot to learn still. But, you know, it was a good learning experience. I'm glad that I went through it. It wasn't fun. But, uh, you know, I'm a better business owner now for it. When you're laying them off, do you do it one by one? Or do you do it in a group? Or how did that work? I did it all in about a day and a half's time. So just kind of as I saw them, that's when they got the ax. So, and it wasn't, hey, you know, you're fired. You're doing a terrible job. It was, hey, I got to change the direction of the ship. The industry's changing. Things are changing. So, you know, we got to do something here. And that was your entire team? That was my entire team. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was a dark few months there. And uh, I had the same office that I have now. So, you know, I basically had this office space that I fired everybody. And so I'd come to work and, you know, in the, in the transitionary time of changing the heading of the ship, you know, I'm the only guy in an office. It can be some lonely, dark days. But, you know, we came out of it. I, I built my new team. I built my new company. And, uh, you know, now we're going gangbusters. I definitely want to talk about your new company. I also want to focus in on this transition because I think it's important to learn about the adversity that you faced. Sure. So others can learn about it as well. So I'm not focusing on it because I want to kick you. I'm focused on it because I I know uh, that other people can get a lot of value from this. So you laid people off, eight to 10 people. Some of them, you know, the processor was your best friend's girlfriend. And then you, what money did you have coming in to support you? Just you and your, were you married at the time? No, I wasn't married at the time, but you know, I had made quite a bit of money over the previous five to six years, you know, both through loan originations and then also through, you know, buying and selling a few properties. So, you know, I had multiple six figures saved up at that point. You know, most recently at that point, I had sold just before the market collapsed. I sold the first house that I ever bought, lived in for two years, finished the basement, rented out. And uh, I made about 180 grand on the sale of that before, right before the market collapsed, which was, you know, luck to some extent, but, you know, good timing, I guess. And so that was kind of, you know, really bankrolled me into being able to make the transition, you know, not having to worry about paying the electric bill or the new mortgage or anything like that in that transitionary time. Now, of course, you know, there's still the stress of feeling, okay, I've only got this much money. I'm going in a new direction. I got to make this work. You know, I remember counting out, okay, how many months does this give me and this and that. But, you know, I definitely made enough money. I wasn't going into it broke. I, you know, I busted my ass for the last six years, you know, really hustling hard. And, uh, you know, I was top producing loan officer, not only for my own company, but for the previous one I worked for. So, you know, money was, was there, but it was, it was money that I had worked for and that I'd earned. And, you know, it made the transition easier, that's for sure. And so you started your company. How did you start your company that you have now, TTM Development Company, compared to how you started or structured the company that you uh, shut down? So the company that I shut down, it was a mortgage company. So there's, there's only a few moving pieces in that company, right? We've got, uh, it was a mortgage brokerage. So I had a, a processor that worked and basically worked all the files. And then I had loan officers that worked for me and loan officers are essentially salespeople. So that made up the, basically the company and myself with the development company, 
it started out as just me and a project manager and a laborer. Well, really, it just started out as me. And then I hired a contractor to help me do my first uh, renovation in that new company. That didn't work out. Eventually, what happened is, is I hired a project manager, somebody that could be on the job site every single day as needed to kind of babysit the projects and the renovations. And then from there, my wife now actually got laid off at that point. And so I brought her on to help me project manage and also do our design work because she was actually a designer for a big builder in town that had kind of shut down operations at that point. So I kind of moved her in as our designer slash project manager helper. I then actually hired her brother, who was unemployed at the time as a full-time laborer. And then eventually we kind of continued to grow. I had a couple of you know people come and go as project manager. And now we've got a guy that uh, came in as a laborer and then he ended up, he's been our project manager for the last four years. Great guy. I take you know, really good care of him. I hope he stays with me for a long time to come. My wife obviously does all of our uh, scheduling and design work. And then uh, the office has grown quite a bit too. So Chris, who is our listing agent, we have our own real estate company now too. I brought him on shortly thereafter, my wife to kind of handle all of our in-office stuff because we did a lot of, originally we bought a lot of REOs, so it was low-hanging fruit, it was easy to find. As the market started to change a little bit or we saw the writing on the wall, we needed to get good at going direct to homeowner and so that's a whole other side of the business that had to get built out. I hired Chris at that point to handle all of our inbound um, you know, lead calls and kind of sift them and sort them and figure out, okay, who's, you know, who's a deal, who's a possible deal, who we should follow up with, who we should go see, present offers. And then eventually that got to be pretty robust. So we hired uh, Dan, who now does a lot of our podcast production, but he used to be our marketing manager. And then Chris eventually got licensed when we opened our own real estate company as well. So now he's my office manager slash listing agent. Dan is in here and uh, he does all of our podcast production. We then hired a guy named Ian who does, who originally did a lot of our letter writing for our direct mail. Now he is in the form of our, our marketing manager, manages all the campaigns and he manages our letter writers. And then out in the field, I have my wife who does all of our scheduling and design work, Jerry, who's our full-time project manager, and then we have a full-time laborer, Shane. So there's quite a few people that work in the business now, but uh, they've all been with me for a very long time. They're all really good people. What's it like to work with your wife? And how do you have that? Is there any separation of, okay, we're not in the office, let's not talk about work? Yeah. I mean, it's not easy, right? Getting to the point of it being easy. And it's never always easy. But one thing that we've done that seems to have worked really well is I have the office and we have, you know, it's almost like we have two businesses. We have the in-office folks and then we have the guys in the field. And so she actually works in the field and at home. We've, I've set her up with a home office. So that way we get a little separation, you know, during the day. We're not on top of each other 24-7. And that really helps a lot. We're, we're working in the same business, but it gives us space. She's actually able to you know, work at home. So, you know, our new daughter, she can be there with her as well. She goes to the job sites as need be. But then I kind of run the, all, all the guys in the office and manage all the stuff here. So we work together, but it gives us enough separation that, you know, we don't get on each other's nerves too bad. And what would you say you've learned from hiring family members and best friends, girlfriends, and anything that you can share to for anyone else <laughs> in that situation? You know, hiring her brother, he's a good guy, but it ended poorly, not because of him, but because of other family stuff. So I would say... I don't hire family and friends anymore. It's just something I don't do. Chris, who's worked with me for the last five or six years, obviously he was a friend first, but we're past the point of it maybe getting weird or something, you know, squirrely happening. But moving forward, yeah, I don't hire, I don't do business with family. I don't do business with friends and I don't hire either of them either. Not that I have anything against them. I just, 
I've seen the ugly side of what it can turn into. And, you know, at this point, I just don't want to interject that into my business ever again. So I just choose not to. All right, Tucker, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? You know, we're in the real estate business, but it's really a people business, people and marketing. So if you're good with people and you're good at marketing, you know, you'll be good at this business. Real estate is just the product, but you got to focus on being good with people and good at marketing and the rest will fall in place. And you said that one of your early jobs, you learned how to sell and how to get good at being on the phone. What are some things that you learned that you can share with the listeners? Well, I was, you know, selling mortgages. So, you know, as a 22, 23 year old kid trying to talk a 40 to 55 year old person on the average into using you as their financier, you got to get pretty good at instilling confidence in people. You got to get good at getting them to know, like, and trust you. And so I think that a lot of real estate investors, for whatever reason, have kind of quirky personalities and they're not very good on the phone. And so if you're not very good on the phone and you're kind of quirky and weird or just not very good with your people skills, generally somebody who wants to sell their house or their apartment complex or whatever it is, they're probably not going to do business with you. And so, you know, having been in the mortgage game for a while, it just allowed me to have a lot of phone time, really understand, you know, sales and really understand being able to connect with people, getting them to know, like, and trust you. And then obviously you do business together. So that was the outcome of being good. But what specifically, what tactics or what approaches could you, did you use with, you know, that you can share with the listeners that maybe they can pick up and do those types of things? Like any particular, maybe warming up exercises before you get on the phone or, I mean, (laughs) maybe... Play some ACDC. Yeah, exactly, right? Like (laughs) Dwight from The Office. Yeah. Anything you can talk about that would help them? You know, there wasn't any like exercises that I did. It was just time on the phone. I mean, you're going to suck at first. That's just the way that it is. But, you know, really in terms of real estate investing, because that's what the focus of this podcast is, you know, you really got to make the phone calls all about them. Whoever it is you're talking to, whether you're buying somebody's house, apartment complex, whatever, you got to listen to them, you know, talk as you need to. The one piece of advice that I can give you is you got to make sure you get a price out of people. Anytime they tell you to just make them an offer, you're probably never going to buy that property. So you got to make sure to be able to get a price and you got to be able to frame your conversations in order to get them to give you that information. And a lot of people don't want to give it up very easily. But if you get good at framing your conversations, you can get them to give you that. And from there, you're in a much better position to be able to buy their property. If you've got somebody, an owner on the phone, and your goal is to get that price so that you know roughly where they're at. And initially you ask them, how much are you looking for? And they're like, oh, I don't know. If you make me an offer, I'll let you know if it's good enough. What do you ask from there? How do you approach that conversation? You know, I always try and make some analogies to things being for sale and having to know what they're, what they cost. And then I'll kind of bring it back with, you know, trying to get a range out of them, a ballpark estimate, something of that nature. And then if that, you know, doesn't work, then I'll go into, basically telling them if we don't get some sort of price out of them, the chance of us actually buying their house is not going to happen in all of our experience. And so usually with the combination of those three things, we obviously don't say it in an adversarial way, but we just try and make it make sense to them. And then that usually gets them to start opening up and talk to us a little more. What are the analogies that you mentioned? You know, if you go to the car lot, you might want that really nice looking car, but if there's, you know, if there's no price tag on it, you got to know what it's going to cost, right? For you to look into it any further. I mean, it takes time for us to do due diligence on property and look into it. So for us to spend the time, we at least need to know ballpark where you're at, right? Got it. There we go. That's cool. Okay. 
So just that's one of many, but you get the idea. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partner. Crowdfunding. You've heard about it. Now it's time for you to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor today, Patch of Land, they're the leading expert in the crowdfunding space, and they've got all the answers to all of your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-A-N-D.com forward slash best ever. What's the best ever book you've read, Tucker? How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think that's the name of it, right? Dale Carnegie. That's the name of it. Best ever personal growth experience and what you learned from it? Going through the uh, real estate collapse, I would say. Made me a better business person and, you know, it just it made me a better business person, that's for sure. And how specifically did it make you a better business person? You know, having to lay a bunch of people off, having to start a new company. You know, the more companies you start, the better you get at, you know, understanding business and, and what makes certain companies successful and not others. So, you know what they say, what, nine out of 10 businesses fail. So if you start 10, one's got to be successful, right? So, <laughs> you know, starting another business just puts you that much farther ahead in the category of, you know, having a real winner. Best ever influence in your life? Ooh, you know, my grandfather probably, he, uh, he was an entrepreneur as well. My parents were not. And uh, they were always very much, you know, go to college, get a good job with a, you know, a good title. And uh, he was kind of the, the, the renegade of, of the family, I guess, in terms of uh, telling me that that's not the way to do it. You want to have your own thing. And so I'm, I'm thankful that he kind of imparted that wisdom on me and that influence because without it, I don't know where I'd be. Best ever deal you've done? We've got one right now that we're uh, building. It's a new construction deal. Uh, it's in an area called Dunthorpe, which is the most expensive area in all of Oregon, really. And uh, it'll be a seven-figure profit for us on one deal, which is great. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? Best ever project you're most excited about? We've made our maiden voyage into the software app business. And so it's been really frustrating, but it's, it's been a great learning experience. And we're about to launch an app that's meant for driving for dollars. And it's taken two years for us to build it, work out all the tweaks. But we're seeing it to the finish line, and it's going to be available uh, here in about two or three weeks. Best ever way you like to give back? I like to take care of the people that work for me and help me achieve my dream. I know a lot of people like to give to charity, but I would rather give to the people that help me achieve what it is that, you know, I've achieved. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Buying rentals to start. That was a big mistake. That was a, a big misnomer that uh, I had when I got into the business. I bought a bunch of rentals on the front end and uh, in hindsight, it was just, it was not a very smart decision. Why? Because I had no experience, I had no idea what it was I was really buying. I didn't understand that you know a few hundred dollars of additional cash flow every month isn't what makes you wealthy and uh, isn't what changes your life. So I'm a big advocate of make the big chunks of cash and then take those assets and deploy them into real estate to generate cash flow. Don't buy real estate very highly leveraged with loans and then just take the small bit of overage and expect that that's going to get you wealthy. And if you didn't start out buying rentals, how would you have started out? I would have started out doing some form of, of wholesaling, then rehabbing, building, something to make chunks of cash that then you could eventually stack up. And as you stack it up, then you can deploy it. You might be able to use some leverage with that cash that you have, but I wouldn't go highly leveraged and then buy things that cash flow and generate nice paydays for you. What do you consider highly leveraged? You know, anything over probably 50, 60% would be pretty highly leveraged, I would think. So with your personal portfolio, you stay in that range of 50 to 60%? Yeah, or less. I mean, at this point, I'm on kind of a 
a war path to buy a, a big apartment complex with a bunch of my own capital that I've that I've saved up and you know I might end up buying two and leveraging them at 50 percent of each but uh, you know once you make the money you want the money to pay you and so you know I'm a big advocate of, of make the big chunks of cash and then use that cash to buy real estate that pays you every month what's the best ever place to reach you you can find us at therealdealspodcast.com um, or you can search us on iTunes. I'm on Facebook as well, both on The Real Deals Podcast and personally. So you can find us at all those places. Tucker, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing your advice and talking about your progress with the different businesses, the adversity that you and the team members had to overcome and uh, what you learned from the experience of whenever a you know, financial meltdown happened and you had your loan company and you had to let people go some of them being uh, close friends or girlfriends of close friends and then you know, starting with a new company and how you've grown that how you've structured it the different lessons that you've learned like don't hire family and friends anymore <laughs> how you work with your significant other within the same business where you have some separation during the day so you know you're you're not stepping over each other but yet you're still both able to you know, do what each of you are enjoy doing with her design skills and, and you um, overseeing the, the operations. And one really interesting part is where you kind of talk through the people marketing of your advice and how you said make sure you get a price out of people, frame the conversation so you get that information, then talking through that car lot analogy where you, you say, well, whenever you go to the car lot, and you see that nice car, you got to know what it'll cost in order to you know, determine if you're going to be able to buy it or not. And just giving analogies like that. And then if that doesn't work, then you know, mentioning in a polite way, if you don't know the price, then you're probably not going to make an offer. So you're not going to be able to buy it from them. And thank goodness for your grandfather and his advice and being an entrepreneur and starting your own company. And then lastly, the don't buy rentals to start, I find very interesting because that's typically not something investors would say uh, where you're focused more on the chunks of cash and uh, stacking them up than, as you say, deploying it to buy larger assets at a lower leverage point. And that is how you're, how you're defining that as 50 to 60%, although you try and buy lower. So thanks so much for being on the show and sharing your advice, and we'll talk to you soon. Great. I'll probably get some hate mail for that Reynolds comment, but hopefully everybody enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not being hated on by someone, then you're really not saying much. That's true. Well, thanks for having me. I think it was a great show. Thanks. Thanks.